I've mentioned once before that when I was a, a young man, uh, a young boy, when I was 12 years old, uh, my grandparents lived in, in uh, on mom's side, lived in San Angelo, Texas. And we would go spend time with them and my grandfather would take me to work with him. Now my grandfather worked for what, I guess by then it may have been Exxon, it was originally Humble Oil. And he was what you would call a gauger. He would drive his truck to all of the different uh, wells on these various leases. And he would drop this metal thing down and gauge how much production there had been in the tanks. He'd do work that needed to be done to make things appropriate at the leases. And I would have a ball going with him because it meant a day in the truck with my grandfather driving around leases and he would show me things and we'd find animals and and uh, get to take a lunch that my grandmother made. I really enjoyed it. Now, my grandfather was a gruff fella, had a very tender heart, but but he, he had a gruff nature as well and and one that he was a little bit proud of, in fact, I think. And, and when I was 12, he told me that I was old enough I needed to learn how to drive. This will come as interest to Becky because I'm now 53 and she says I still need to learn to drive. But at the time, I really had a a much bigger learning curve. And so what my grandfather did is out on one of the the leases where we were is he put me on these caliche roads, which are made of, of ground up stone. And he would have me drive around the pickup truck on these leases because there's nobody else around. It's an easy place to do it. The problem is I kept hitting all of these chuggles that are in the road. And and he'd tell me to quit. He'd say, you know, don't hit the chug hole. It's going to mess up the suspension in the truck. And about, I'd, yes, sir. Then about a minute later, I'd hit another one. He'd say, gummit, that's what I told you not to do. I said, okay, about a minute or two later, I'd hit another one. So he says, stop the truck, stop the truck. So I stop the truck. He says, get out. I get out. He says, look at where the wheel is. I looked at the wheel. He says, that's what you want to keep out of the chug holes. I said, okay. He says, now, come on, get back in. So I get back in. I'm driving. Well, about a minute or two later, bam, I hit another pothole in the road. And he just says, why are you hitting it? And I said, well, I didn't see it. He says, if you can't see that, you must be blind. I said, I'm just telling you, I didn't see it, granddaddy. If I'd seen it, I wouldn't have hit it. And he says, well, you can't drive if you're blind. So he scoots me over. Goes back and he's telling mom and dad about how how I, I can't see the chug holes in the road. And when was the last time they had my eyes checked? And they said, well, I, you know, I don't know. They check it at school. Well, I'm telling you, the boy's blind. <laughs> so we went back to Lubbock, and uh, uh, Mom took me to the eye doctor. And I was sitting there when, the eye, when Mom uh, asked the eye doctor his opinion after we went through all of the eye doctor stuff. He said, that boy can't see the side of a barn. <laughs> And mom said, well, I don't know about that, but I know he can't see chug holes. <laughs> and that's when I learned I needed glasses. And so I've had these little monsters, well, not this particular pair, but I've worn those ever since. And and it's it just strikes me as just a humorous way to see the difference 
when I put them on for the first time, we were on 4th Street in Lubbock, Texas, and we picked them up at the eyeglass store, whatever you call that, and we were driving, and I didn't put them on at first. And so dad and mom were both in the car. Dad was driving. I'm in the back seat. And we were on 4th Street between University and Indiana. There was a shopping center that had a Furs cafeteria that had really good coconut cream pie to our right. And I put my glasses on and I saw things that I never, I, I never dreamed people could see things that clearly. The next morning in Miss Dickey's reading class, my first class at school with glasses, I was thinking, man, I thought there'd been glare on the chalkboard this whole time. Turns out I was just blind. You could see things so differently. Well, I don't have glasses for you to wear today, but I want you to see things differently. Because here's what I'm driving at. Vision... Driving at. (laughs) Didn't do that on purpose. I would try to dodge those car puns. Um, Anyway, vision is a peculiar thing. Because we see things very differently in the eyes of the world than God sees things. God has a different vision than we do. See, you and I, we can see what's right in front of us. And we can play a little chess. I can't really see the future, but I can determine, hey, if if I do that, this is going to happen. Uh, so I can, like a game of chess, I, can, I can't maybe go five or six moves, but I can go a move or two. I can see what's happening. I can see a little bit of the past. I can see how the pieces were set up. But that's not God. God's not just looking at the position that I'm in right now, that like I do, with a little bit of idea of what might happen in the future. God sees the entire world. And not just the entire world, but He sees it past, present, and future. And he doesn't just see it past, present, and future, but he sees and discerns it in light of what his mission is and how he's going to accomplish his mission. I still say the most amazing aspect of God as, I, as I'm at this stage in my life is the way I've grown in appreciation that he lets humanity make their own choices. But somehow within the mix, it all works together and effectuates His will. So, this is what God does. God sees things differently than us. And as we look at the story today in Acts, we're able to appreciate it so much better if we do both. Look at it from the perspective of the world, how the actors were, what they were seeing. But then also look at it from the perspective of God who sees past, present, and future and works all of it out towards His mission. So that's what I want us to do. Now, to do that, we need to remember that Paul, after his arrest in Jerusalem, 
was given this word of encouragement from the Lord at night. This was, if you were here on the, the, the Sunday that I did the class recently on Paul's really bad day. This was the encouragement he got that night from the Lord. Luke writes about it in what we've designated chapter 2311. Luke didn't have the chapters designated. He was writing on a long scroll. But we call it chapter 23, verse 11, and it says, Take courage. This is God talking to Paul. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul knows it's God's mission and plan for Paul to go to Rome. That gives Paul a certain degree of liberty and freedom, as as Pastor Fleming was using the words today. Knowing what the will of God was, as Paul lives holy and righteous before God, seeking to have his will done on earth, as it is in heaven. So, the key to understanding where we are with God's vision and what Paul's been told, is understanding That God's purposes, what God has purposed to do, and this is true for you and me too, no less true for us. What God has purposed means, by definition, we need it in God's timing. Because when God told Paul, you're going to Jerusalem to preach, God didn't say, oh, and it will happen tonight. And Paul didn't expect it to happen in Paul's schedule. Paul didn't say, well, let me get my, my, uh, uh, iPhone out. Let me, let me calendar this. Okay. Going to Rome, uh, probably within the next week. I'll just walk out the week. Paul knew he was dependent upon God's timing for God's promise, for God's purpose, for God's mission. It's all about God. And so that's what we have. So we pick up the story in Caesarea Maritima, which is the, uh, it's the, Caesarea means it's Caesar's. This is Caesar's town. It's named after Caesar. Caesar by the sea. And it's the port town that was about 60 miles northeast of Northwest of Jerusalem. Now, if you went there today, you could see ruins of Herod the Great's palace. That's where Paul would have had his audience. His trial, if you will. Adjoining it a little bit more out toward the ocean was the residence that was originally built by Herod the Great though Herod the Great is at this point long dead. I say long dead. Yeah, long dead. He died in 4 BC. We're in around 57, 58 AD right now. So, we can look at it if you walked up to it. It's that rectangle built out into the sea. That's where the residence was. And in all honesty, that's probably where Paul was being held for at least some of this. So if we put all of this into what perspective we need with the world's eyes, here's what's going on with the world's glasses. 
This is the chessboard. These are the pieces at play from the eyes of the world. In Caesarea, at this point in time, there's a significant amount of fighting going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. The fighting is arguably about whether or not Caesarea is a Jewish town or whether or not it's a Roman town. And we know most of this history from Josephus. Now, Josephus, I've brought a very readable copy of Josephus. This is one, if you're ever going, look, Christmas is right around the corner and everybody's always looking for a new edition of Josephus for Christmas. This edition of Josephus, which makes a handy stocking stuffer, is the one by Paul Mayer. It doesn't have the complete works of Josephus. He's called out some of the parts that don't really have much relevance. But for your purposes, it's got, and, 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 uh, most others, it's got tremendous readability. The, the, the version most people would get, the Whitston Complete, was translated in the 1700s and is just almost as readable as the King James. Really tough. But, uh, uh, this, I mean, this is just like, so readable. So, I mean, give you a, a, a sample of what you're dealing with here. This is uh, Josephus's section on the Roman governors. Having such a character, Ananus thought that with Festus dead and Albinus still on the way, he'd have the proper opportunity. Convening the judges of the Sanhedrin, he brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ whose name was James, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. But those of the city residents who were deemed the most fair-minded and who were strict in observing the law were offended at this. Accordingly, they secretly contacted the king, Agrippa II, urging him to order Ananus to desist from any more such actions, for he'd not been justified in what he'd already done. This is the time period when James, the brother of Jesus, is martyred. That's the James who wrote the James book in the New Testament. And so he will be martyred shortly after this time period here. Festus is not yet dead where we are in, in uh, uh, Acts. But I want you to see this because King Agrippa II stops some of the persecution of the church. When it's reported to him that James, the brother of Jesus, is dead. I want to tell you, as we work through this history, that one of the reasons King Agrippa did this is because of what he learned about the church from Paul. We will be looking at a window of time before this occurred. But this is the man, King Agrippa II, that we're concerned with. So here's what's going on in Caesarea. Paul's been taken to this Caesar by the sea. 
And Paul's been taken there because of the plot on Paul's life in Jerusalem. So Paul is there. Paul goes before the governor Felix for his trial. And we talked about this last time. But Caesarea had been having this this fighting between Jew and, and Gentile. And Felix had decided that the Jews were wrong and thought it was an insurrection. So he sent his army in to kill a bunch of the Jews. He kills the Jews and gives the army permission to plunder their houses. Well, the Jews aren't real happy with this. And it's just one example of what really is an inept governor. Who's just making stupid decisions. Tacitus wrote about how inept Governor Felix was. And I showed you that quote when we dealt with him last time. That quotation. So you've got this inept governor who's making these stupid decisions. And the Jews decide they're going to complain to Nero, the emperor. They're sending emissaries to the emperor of Rome to say this inept governor is turning your people into insurrectionists. By the way, he's handling his officership. Well, Governor Felix gets fired before the complaints to Rome are there. But the Jews are still planning on going to complain to Nero. They don't want Felix to get another job. They don't like the fella. So they're going to go complain to Nero. And here is the way Luke writes it up. Luke says, when two years had elapsed, two years since Paul got in front of Felix, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix knows, man, the Jews are going to complain to Nero. I might never get another job. They're all upset. Well, okay, I'll try to keep them from complaining. They want this Paul guy. I'll just leave Paul in prison instead of cutting him loose. See, from the world's glasses, Felix thinks he's doing something to help the Jews so that Felix can save his own hide with Pharaoh, uh, with uh, Caesar Nero. Meanwhile, the Jews are thinking, hey, we've leveraged at least some of this, now we've still got Paul. And a chance to get at Paul. Meanwhile, in God's eyes, Paul is exactly where Paul needs to be. To communicate a Christian gospel message to a king who's going to be able to stop or minimize persecution and martyrdom of the church in Jerusalem. It's amazing. So here's the way it unfolds. Festus comes out to take over. There's a new sheriff in town. And when... I, that's what he looked like. I googled Festus and it came up under Google Images. So I, I feel pretty confident that's pretty accurate view of Portius Festus. I didn't know he drove a Porsche. 
Um, anyway, so Festus succeeds and takes over the governorship. Now, when Festus does it, he just spends a day or two in Caesarea. He's immediately got this, you know, here's Paul, you know, in residence in Caesarea now for two years, preaching the gospel right and left as Paul was wont to do. And so within just a day or two, with all the unrest, all the Jews upset, all the discord going on, the rioting, all, every, their Jews are going to complain to the Pharaoh, uh, to the Pharaoh. Why do I keep giving, I guess because it kind of rhymes with Nero, Nero Pharaoh. It's, he's a Caesar. With Nero, the Caesar. While all of that's going on, Festus says, hey, I got to figure out the lay of the land. So Festus makes a journey from Caesarea and goes down to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there, to figure out what's going on. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 25. So let's go, let's put the text up to look at. And uh, uh, as much as we can, I want us to look through the text. If we're running low on time, um, uh, I'll pull the text down and we'll, uh, we'll do it uh, with me explaining it as opposed to getting to read it first. So three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, they laid their case out against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul. Now you see, the Jews have some degree of, of authority the Romans don't want the Jews in full rebellion mode. The Romans want the Pax Romana. They want peace in the empire. They don't want to have to send a bunch of troops down to, to backwater Judea. They've got a few. They want that to be enough. When there ultimately is an insurrection 11, 12 years later, Rome has to send a boatload more of troops down there. So they don't want to do that. Rome doesn't want to do that. So, so the Jews have some authority. And they've already, they've gone to tattle on the last governor. And the new governor comes in and says, hey, you know, I need to, guys, let's just all, you know, why can't we be friends? Peace. Give peace a chance. They said, well, Give us a favor. A showing of goodwill, if you will. Against Paul. Bring Paul back to Jerusalem. We understand he's entitled to a trial. But just bring him back to Jerusalem for the trial. That We're not asking for a lot. A favor, please. Because they had an ambush plan to kill Paul while he's on the way. Now... Festus replied, Paul was being kept at Caesarea, that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, they can bring charges against him. And after he stayed with them for not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. This would have been in the uh, area that we looked at with the columns, the ruins there. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many serious charges against him that they couldn't prove. 
They didn't have two eyewitnesses, which is what they needed. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus really wants to do the Jews the favor that they had asked for. So Festus just says to Paul, hey, you want to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? There may be two eyewitnesses in Jerusalem that didn't make the journey. You want to go with me? We'll go to Jerusalem. You can be tried in front of me. You're innocent. You walk. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, kill me. I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Apello ad Caesar. In the Latin. I'm still convinced Paul spoke Latin. May not have been great, but it was pretty good. That is the exact Latin phrase. Though it's produced in Greek by Luke. The exact Latin phrase that would be used by a Latin, a Roman citizen in a court of law if they're making an appeal from a death sentence to Caesar, which every Roman citizen had the right to do. Now, some of us think in terms of the United States today, and we read these Bible stories and we think, oh, come on. Like, if I'm indicted for something, I appeal to President Obama. What are the odds? It's actually very different. Back then, the odds, it wasn't the odds. It was the right of the Roman citizen. And we have written accounts of the Caesars hearing very mundane cases that we would consider mundane because they were appealed to Caesar. Now, by the way, if you appealed to Caesar and you did not have adequate grounds, Caesar could make the punishment a whole lot more harsh than it was otherwise. So it was not done all the time routinely. Festus, when he conferred with his council, said, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now you can read almost any book on Paul and they'll tell you Paul had this right as a Roman citizen, but I'm a lawyer. I wanted to read where we get that from. Do we have something independent from Luke that says this? Or is it simply our interpretation of history based upon the biblical account? Turns out we got tons. I read more Roman law this week than I read American law. It's fascinating to me. So Paul makes his appeal to Caesar something Paul had the right to do. Look what happens next. If we go back to the PowerPoint, I mean to the... uh, Text. So, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. This is the king that we were reading about that in a year is going to cut some mercy to the church. This is that king. 
In fact, if we go to the PowerPoint, let's, uh, let's throw it up here. Herod the Great built the structure where we're, where Paul is being held and where Paul's hearing is taking place. Those are the ruins. This is Herod the Great, born 73 or 74 BC. Dies 4 BC. This is the Herod who was a whack job, maniac, paranoid, power monger. He killed his own sons. He'd kill his wife. He killed tons of people that he thought were trying to be king. Matthew tells us that when he heard Jesus was born, who was to be king of the Jews, that after finding out from the wise men where the king of the Jews, wise men, was to be born, slaughtered all the infants, two years old and younger. Kills his own son. Why would he have any problem doing that? Killed his sons because they were conspiring to be kings. Well, among his, he had ten wives. Among, which tells you right there the man wasn't sane. <laughs> or he'd have gotten a, an angel like mine. Aristobulus the fourth was one of his ten children. Aristobulus, if you look at it, 31 to 7 B.C. Boy, he didn't live very long, did he? 24 years? Strangled by his dad. Because Aristobulus was a little too popular with the people. But before he's strangled, he does manage to marry his cousin and have some kids. One of his kids is Herod Agrippa I. Born 10 B.C., was just three when dear old dad lost his breath. Lives to 44 A.D. This is the Herod who martyred the early church. This is the Herod that was written of in Acts chapter 12. This Herod has three kids. He has a son named Herod Agrippa II. That's the Herod we're talking about today. We don't know when he was born or died, but he was born around 27 A.D. So the king we're talking about today is about 30 years old when he's here in Paul. He's with his sister Bernice, who's a year older than he is. Bernice uh, goes on to be in the halls of Rome. Bernice goes on to be a consort of the Roman Titus. Bernice becomes very influential in, in Roman court. But at this time, she's chumming around with her brother. And then they had another sister, Drusilla. Drusilla was married to the governor, Felix, the, the inept guy that just got fired. I mean, this is pretty incestuous. And I will make no jokes about Arkansas. 
I mean, they got everybody's married their cousin and has the same name. Which makes it really hard for us to understand if we don't, as Steve, my original draft didn't have the, the chart that I've put in here. And Steve emailed me and said, I like the lesson, but you need a chart. These names are getting all confused. And he was right. So now, Paul's appearing in front of Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. We go back to the text. So Festus laid Paul's case before the king, and here's what Festus says. There's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews, they laid out their case. They wanted me to condemn him to death. I said, that's not the custom to give him uh, uh, someone up before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense. And he just explains it all to him. And he says, when the accusers stood up, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the, his case of, of evils like I was expecting. Instead, they just had some points of dispute about their own religion, about this guy named Jesus who was dead, but Paul says he wasn't dead. That's what they're fighting over. And being at a loss as you investigate these questions, I ask if he just wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding him. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, Agrippa says to Festus, I want to hear this guy. Festus says, all right, that's what we'll do tomorrow. So the next day, Agrippa, in his granddaddy's palace, as a guest, Agrippa and his sister come with great pomp. They enter the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. These are the people that Paul's going to get to testify about Jesus in front of. All because the world of, of, of certain Jewish leaders were being done a favor. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting he ought not to live any longer. But I found he'd done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But, and I read this, Roman law required the governors not just to send whoever's appealing, but they had to write out what the crime was and what they were convicted of and what they're appealing from. And 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 Festus, bless his heart, he said, I don't know what to write. So I brought him before you, especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examined him, I can write what he did wrong. I mean, how's that going to look? Caesar, this man's been condemned to death. Because he thinks this guy named Jesus is alive and everybody else thinks he's dead. I mean, we're killing Romans for that now? It seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Well, it would not only unreasonable, it seemed to you it would seem that way to Caesar too and you'd be in trouble for being a sloppy governor. So Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now, we read Paul doing that in, in uh, Athens, too. That's the orator's pose. So, Paul, he does the, the I'm, this guy's a stud. <laughs> I think he is so cool. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today, especially against all the accusation of the Jews, because you're familiar with the customs and controversies. So I beg you to listen to me patiently. You know this stuff. You know what's going on. Hear it from me. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. i got to time out for a moment. I love people who study the Word of God. I love them whether they come to the conclusions I do or whether they don't. I just admire them and respect them. I got an email from a, a, a fellow who's in our class at least some of the time. Seems like a young fellow. I don't know how old. Didn't identify himself. Said he believes in reincarnation because he thinks the Bible teaches it. And I had a couple of passages of scripture. And I was sincere when I wrote him back and said, I really appreciate someone who's reading the Bible to try to figure out what they believe. I think that's fantastic. I don't think the Bible teaches reincarnation. In fact, there's a Hebrews passage you need to know about that says there's appointed for man once to die and then judgment. And the passages, I think one of the passages he was concerned about was the, the uh, man who was born blind that Jesus healed. And the question was asked uh, of Jesus by his disciples, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he'd be born blind? And this young man who had emailed me said, you know, if he's going to be born blind because of his own sin, then he must have had another life and sinned in another life. It's karma. And I got to explain to him, no. That the Jews believed at that time, many Jews believed, that you could sin in the womb. And I know a few women today who will still tell me that their kids were sinning in the womb. But that's what it's a reference to. It's not a reference to him having had a prior existence or life. In fact, you can read Job where his friends say to Job, hey... You know, you may not know that you sinned. You probably did it in the womb. But this was you that did this. You know, so that's that's the thought. But I appreciate people who do it. I do, however, take to task people who do it with, um, without care in a way that, that is destructive to the integrity of Scripture. And if you're reading a lot of the, the more critical, especially older critical commentaries of Acts... They say Luke didn't know what he was talking about because Paul tells his conversion account three times in Acts. It's told first, well, Luke tells it once and Paul tells it twice. And each time the details are a little bit different. And so it's clear that this is just a composite of either different accounts or different sources. But clearly the writer of Acts didn't know what he was talking about. To which I say, that's just wrong and nutty because when I could give this exact same talk to a different audience and I would emphasize things differently based on who my audience was, based on what I had for breakfast, 
you know, the fact that, that there are nuanced, uh, uh, different points emphasized, that it's not an inconsistent thing. I mean, it's not like Paul says, I was on the road to Damascus in one place. In another place, he says, I was on the road to Istanbul. You know, I, there, there are not inconsistencies. It's just a different emphasis, which to me is authenticity. I mean, if Luke recorded where Paul says it word for word the exact same way here that he did when he's speaking to the Jews on the steps, having just been accosted by everybody and beat up, I would say, eh, eh, there's no way he says it the exact same way twice. Just doesn't happen. So this is legit. This is real. We're reading real history. Paul says, um, uh, the Jews have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Now, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's God. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison. Whoops. I did so. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Indicating perhaps Paul was in the Sanhedrin. I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, at midday, at noon, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice. The voice is saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you've seen me and to those to in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. That they may turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Agrippa's hearing the Christian message that he needs to know about. Within a year. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I declared first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the Gentiles, repent 
Turn to God. Perform deeds in keeping with repentance. This is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, though. To this day, they have not been successful. They are able to kill lots of people. But they've not been successful because I've had the help of God. That I'm even appearing in front of you is the word of God. So I stand here testifying both to small and to great. Because that's who's in that room listening. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Well, now, while he's saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, says, Now, Festus doesn't know any of this. He's a newcomer. Newcomer to the region. He doesn't know Jews. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the difference between come here and sick him. <laughs> Which makes him a dangerous dog. He says, Paul, you've gone crazy. You're brilliant, but it's driven you mad. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul says, uh, time out. I'm not really talking to you right now. <laughs> no. He says, uh, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things, and it's to him I'm speaking so boldly. Because I'm persuaded that none of this has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, just this short a time while we're all sitting here, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That Agrippa even knew the term Christian, which had first been used in Antioch a decade earlier. Tells you Agrippa knows what's going on. Doesn't call it the way. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they'd withdrawn, they said to one another, this guy hadn't done anything that deserves not only death, he just didn't even need to be locked up. And Agrippa said to Festus, well, he could have been set free if he hadn't already filed his appeal. But now he's got to go to Caesar. Back to the PowerPoint, please. God's purpose means God's timing. Because God sees the past, the present, and the future. And he sees the whole world. So Paul can say to, God can say to Paul, take courage for as you've testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. God says that to Paul and it's going to happen, but it's going to happen in God's timing. Because God's got to use Paul in Caesarea for a few other things before he sends him on to Rome. And that's the beauty of the difference between the glasses we wear and what we see and the way God sees this whole world unfolding. 
vision is a peculiar thing. Your points for home. Now, when some days had passed, that's when all of this comes to a head. When some days had passed, you know, I've got some things that I've, God's put on my heart that I pray about, that I pray about fervently, and I truly believe in faith God's going to honor those prayers. He's going to do it in his timing because he's got some other things he's got to do along the way. This is his mission that's about. When Jesus taught us to pray, that we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's going to come about in his timing, in his manner, meeting his purposes. And my job is to trust in that and to walk in that, to trust and be obedient, trust and obey, to trust and be obedient, walking in faith of God's vision. See, that's what walking by faith is, walking by trust. It's, I can't see past a move or two on the chessboard, or three or four, or five or six. But God sees it all, and I'm going to trust in his vision. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he uses the vision analogy. He says, we see right now as in a mirror dimly. But there will be a day when history is through, where we'll see fully. As God's plan has been unfolded, when we stand at that end of time instead of caught up within it. And while we're here, we need to do it in trust. Point for home two. Paul, you're crazy. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. Paul says, no, I'm speaking true and rational words. The trust that I'm calling for here, that God's calling for in his vision, is not a trust of mindlessness. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's not a, okay, I'm just going to trust. I've closed my eyes. Someone's going to catch me. Not at all. It's one that makes the most sense. It not only makes sense, it makes the most sense. I don't believe in the Lord because I, 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 I am looking for something to make me uh, able to live through my day. I don't believe in the Lord simply because I had the great honor of growing up with a godly mother and a godly father and godly siblings. I believe in the Lord because it makes the most sense to me. It explains who I am. It explains history. It explains purpose. It explains meaning. It explains right and wrong. It explains uh, uh, destiny. It explains beauty. It explains evil. It explains wickedness. It explains horror and atrocity. It explains temptation. It makes more sense than anything else I can find. 
We're not out of our minds believing that God can resurrect from the dead. If he can't, we're all out of our minds, period. Because the mind's of no use. It's just a collection of molecules. Then one day we'll be in a different form. All we are, if there is no God resurrecting us from the dead, all we are is a collection of atoms. We're no different than this fake plant down here. So we're rightly in our mind. Last question. Do you believe the prophets? Boy, Paul had no trouble addressing the king. He's only king of a little province, but he was still a king. Paul had no problem addressing the king and asking him, you believe in Jesus? You know, that's the real personal question for each of us. Most people in here do or you wouldn't be in here. Maybe some of you don't. And if so, there's a host of people who would love to tell you about Jesus. Right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the the wonderful account of history that you've put into the Bible here. Thank you also for securing through history other sources of, of history so that we can see more fully how your hand worked. Worked to bring us to where we are today. And Father, each of us have, I, uh, have, have things to lay before you, things on our heart, things about us, about our families, about our jobs, about our friends, about our loved ones, about our country, about the world. May we lay them before you, Father, in faith, trusting in your timing, in your purpose, in your mission, in your vision. And seeking simply to follow your will as we see it unfolded. We pray through our Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Amen. Amen.